Hi, I'm Krista Lusage, and welcome to Just Be, Matters of Justice and Biblical Equality. If you're looking to build your foundation and being able to share the truth of biblical equality with those around you, then you are in the right place. If you're not sure that the Bible teaches the full equality of men and women, or think that being a woman is a disqualifier for certain leadership roles, this podcast will offer some help in your journey as you reevaluate this important topic. Listen in. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with author Rick McInnes, who wrote a compelling book entitled Equally Yoked, What the Bible Really Teaches About God's Ideal for the Genders. Look, I believe that the Bible teaches the full and equal partnership of male and female. And I believe that we see that modeled in the New Testament, but it's obscured by tradition. I'm going to teach from the Bible why I believe what I believe. If I persuade you, then it's incumbent upon us to make these changes because we say that the Bible is our sole rule of faith and practice. Those are some thoughts that Rick shares with us at the end of the show. But first, a word of introduction. Rick has two degrees from Bethel Seminary, where he was also an adjunct professor, and he has been pastoring Wellspring Church, a converged church in Kensington, Connecticut. Well, welcome, Rick, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. So I am really excited to talk to you today. I love reading your book, and I can't wait to dive in and talk to you about it. You should see like almost every page. I have underlines and notes in the margins, and it just really soaked in all of it. But obviously, some of our listeners haven't read the book yet. But I think they're just going to love hearing your thoughts on biblical equality and might even want to hop on Amazon when this is all over and pick up a copy for themselves. That'd be great. I found it to be such a rich resource. And I really appreciate how every chapter was remarkably footnoted, which I think just goes in to show how carefully you tackled this issue. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it was important for me to write the book for pastors and serious students of the Bible. But at the same time, because I was writing to pastors, and because it's a controversial topic, and tradition has been so entrenched, you know, I felt it was important that I know, you know, what my resources were, what my sources were, etc. Yeah, so that was the That was the perspective I took. I think it's interesting. We are both from a similar background of church flavor, you could say. And a lot of the foundations within our evangelical background, I actually grew up in a converged church. You're pastoring a converged church. And I think it's interesting that within this network of churches, there's not one side of this issue. It's sort of something that churches on their own come to Right. An agreement of what they feel the Bible is most clearly teaching. And given that, with all the foundations of a traditional or more hierarchical approach to understanding manhood and womanhood that you address, you also do a little deconstructing and also reconstructing in your work here. I'm going to read a few snippets from your first chapter. Yep. You say, I had to be able to demonstrate clearly from the whole of Scripture the soundness of my position, or I would end up eroding people's confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible as their guide for faith and practice. Eventually, I was persuaded by the persistent promptings of God's Spirit to tackle the task. The ideal partnership for men and women is both complementary and fully equal. So what do you think that this issue 
is one more conservative Christians tend to see as a litmus test of sorts of, of your seriousness in understanding the Bible and that you, if you're for equal opportunities for men and women in the church or in the home, that you're not staunchly obeying the scriptures. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's probably related to two things. I think the easier one to understand is that down through the centuries, a patriarchal perspective of humankind has been, it's been believed that this is what the Bible teaches. And, you know, there's lots of references in the scripture that you can like take a verse and you can quote unquote prove that perspective. And that's been, that's been the teaching position, certainly of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformed Church and then through evangelicalism. And so I think that people who take the Bible seriously as the bedrock of their faith to question this particular issue is to them it feels like you're attacking the bible so i think that's one reason i think the other reason is that you know i'm old enough to have grown up in the 60s and lived through the 70s and those were times of great social change and upheaval in our nation and unfortunately from my perspective, you know, the evangelical church tended to be fairly reactionary rather than like weighing different issues and sorting out, well, what does the Bible really say? What is justice here? What is truth here? There was just reaction against the kind of general social upheaval. And so since feminism was the main voice that was advocating for equality between the genders, and it was a progressive left-wing political movement, I think, you know, generally evangelical church people are tend to be conservative, small c, And so they saw that as an attack on culture and then as an attack on their faith. So I think those are the reasons. And then just the power of tradition itself. I mean, you know, when when all your Bible teachers are men, you know, you're going to read the scripture through the lens and filter of your own experience. And that in and of itself is a factor in this ongoing discussion that we all have confirmation bias. We all have our own experience. And, you know, when it's males who are doing the interpreting of the scriptures without any feminine voice, without any feminine perspective, you're going to tend to have a monolithic view. And history has shown that's been the case for almost 20 centuries. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they think this is how it's always been. And that in itself lends strength to traditional views of men and women. And it's just unthinkable to consider that the church has been wrong on this for so, so long. And now we're just we're just going to change it. But that's why I love the quote that you use of A.J. Gordon, where he says, to follow the voice of the church apart from that of the written word has never proved safe. What a what a warning to not just get comfortable with your tradition, but to constantly go back to the word of God and ask it to reveal to you what it's truly teaching. Well, you know, that, uh, Krista, that whole idea that God works with humanity as he's created us and that we can be genuinely his people and yet be mistaken and that the church can have believed the wrong thing for millennia. I mean, that's a scandalous concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you look at the scriptures, it's not that revelation changes, our understanding of revelation changes. And because we learn line upon line, building block upon building block, precept upon precept, there is a growing understanding of what the scriptures actually say. The scriptures don't change, but our understanding of them changes. And to a lot of people, that's scandalous. Like, how could God operate that way? Well, God has limited himself to working with humanity in this venture of redemption. And I mean, to me, the best example of it 
how did the disciples learn from Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, they learned through their mistakes. Just because they had misunderstandings of the Hebrew scriptures or what the implication of covenant faith with Yahweh was, he didn't pitch them out. He taught them and they learned from their mistakes and went on to a deeper understanding. Mm-hmm. So it is pretty scandalous. I mean, that's a risky view of the world. Uh, and, you know, my perspective is most evangelical Christians, they want things more nailed down than that. And so just that whole idea that God is willing to take great risks with us and that the venture of salvation, it's a risk venture, if I could borrow that term, Mm -hmm. that's a big step of faith to embrace that. Right. It's not a program you can sign up with or just a membership you just sign on the line. It's an ongoing daily walking with the Lord, what God's going to ask you to do or how he's going to change you. I've been really intrigued with the way that you reference how this issue is positioned in the within the realm of the kingdom of God and how in God's kingdom things are different and should be different from how it was and continues to be in the world at large. Can you explain for our listeners how we have an eschatological hope in becoming who God created us to be and how God is working in the Christian church to continue to bring changes that bring us into better relationships with each other? Yeah, well, that's a big question right <laughs> yeah, there. a little bit. Well, I mean, let's just start at the beginning, you know, eschatological, which is, it's an English word based on a Greek word. Eschaton means things of the end, Mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we just think big picture, one of the geniuses of the biblical worldview is that the biblical worldview is that God is the creator and he's involved in the creation and he's going somewhere. And so, and in its biggest meaning, eschatology means that the creator has a purpose for his creation. And once creation fell, then his purpose was to redeem it and to restore it. And so this thing is going somewhere, and he has a purpose, he has an end. And his end is to restore what his dream was in the beginning, which was to have a human family. He created us male and female, that we would be in relationship with him, where he could reveal his heart to us. We could explore a relationship with him. It's a relationship of trust and love and obedience. And he shares with us stewardship over his creation. So the concept of the kingdom, particularly, let's just start with Jesus. I think there are seeds of the kingdom in the Hebrew scriptures, but Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available, it's accessible, and it was accessible through him. And so at that point, it's like we moved into the final chapter, if you will. There's many subchapters of this last chapter, but the like the eschaton in many ways began, you know, in the cross and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What I want to get to is that the order of life in the kingdom is supposed to be on a higher level and different from how it is in the world around us. And because we're going to the original design of the creator, we're going to the design of his ideal rather than this fallen and broken world in which we find ourselves. Hmm. That helps with understanding how things can remain a certain way for so long and not be right, even in the church. I love your reference to Jesus's parable on the kingdom of God being like a yeast woman took and worked through a huge 60 pound batch of dough. And what's going to happen, it takes time, right? Yep. It takes time to work the yeast all the way through, and then it takes time to let it do what it's going to do. And Jesus said that it's going to take time. So for everyone who says, well, why didn't Jesus just fix this? Well, there's a lot of things he didn't fix. (laughs) But he gave us the tools to get it done, you know. 
Yeah, there's power in the yeast, and the power is the power of truth. It's the power of the idea. It's the power of the ideal. And then, of course, partnered with the operative work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. I mean, let's just take, for example, to me, this is a classic illustration of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, in our own nation right now, we are still struggling with the ongoing effects of slavery. Mm -hmm. You know, the biblical world was full of slavery. God accommodates for it in uh, the Hebrew Bible simply because it's part of the reality of a fallen world. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he never directly attacks slavery. Right. Um, he does. There is this extraordinary little book of Philemon where Paul writes this letter about an escaped slave named Onesimus who came across Paul's path. Uh, Paul led him to the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is sending this letter back with Onesimus to go back to his owner. And basically what, he, you know, what he's saying is, I'm sending you your brother. Now, you can't own your brother. You know, the power of the ideal, Paul just states the kingdom ideal, and he trusts that it is going to work itself to its logical consequences. And in the, in the first century church, you had slaves who were church leaders. And um, that, you know, just think of the radical nature of a slave presiding over the Lord's table. That's going to have major impact on the social order. It's going to take a while for that to work itself through the whole loaf, but the power of the ideal is on display, and God trusts the truth to work to its ultimate conclusion. Yeah, thank you for relating what we're all sensing and feeling with our own coming to terms with our own history of slavery and... I think it's something that probably most of us this day and age we take for granted. And we think back to the time of when we had slavery as being legal in this country and we think, well, that of course that was terrible and of course, you know, I, we wouldn't have been for it. My church would have would have been one of the abolitionists and and to look back and really understand how in this same exact way Christians were going to scripture and saying, well, you know, we we see that there's slaves here and you know, this yep. is part of our society. It seems to be working and you know, let's not rock the boat. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful perspective, you know, like to look at the scripture in that way and then to look at our own history. We're all subject to confirmation bias. And so if it's part of our world, it's been part of our experience, and we're good Christian people, it takes a lot of courage to even take that first step of making the journey toward change. If we relate it back to the topic of the book, you think of the power of tradition. It's really hard to take on tradition because it's incredibly powerful. It is. And I'm noticing with friends who have grown up in the church and came to faith in churches that promoted these kind of hierarchical ideas of men and women to kind of question that tradition is difficult, <laughs> to say the least. Well, and, you know, if you're in a church environment that doesn't allow questions, then it's even harder because I think the church should be a question friendly environment. Because if we don't allow for questions, then how's anybody going to come of age and still hold on to the faith? Because that's part of the process of becoming an adult is to, you know, question reality, question what's, I mean, that's just the journey. And mm -hmm. if Christian faith is hostile to questions, we make it really hard to be a thinking believer. 
Mm, that's so good. Yeah, and I think especially in light of anyone who's developed their sense of gender identity and equality from outside of the church, let's just say, coming to faith in a church that's now trying to implement ideas that basically put women in more of a secondary place. They won't say that it's not equal, but it is secondary. And I think as a church, sometimes we're trying to keep ourselves comfortable by maintaining tradition, which seems so powerful and entrenched to us, but to the very people that we're trying to reach, this is going to become more and more of an obstacle that's like, wait a, wait a second, you know, I don't have that entrenched sense of tradition and how it should be. And so I think we need to do our due diligence to make sure that we're presenting the gospel in a way that truly reflects what the Bible says, because people aren't just going to accept our tradition. Now it's it's almost a tradition that's exclusive to Christianity in, in America. So I think it's especially important that we really think about this and try to figure it out. Before we examine some of the passages that seem to place women in secondary or submissive roles under men, can we talk a little bit about other places in scripture where you see God working to bring women out from under the traditional pattern of dominance that would have been during Bible times under the dominance of men. You write about Old Testament bookmarks and the relationship that Jesus had with women. So you could just talk a little bit about that or if there was one that stood out to you that impacted you in a more personal way. I think, well, you know, just Jesus' relationship to women. It says in, in Luke chapter 8 that there were women who traveled with Jesus' apostolic team, and they supported the team out of their own means. They were women of means. I'm looking at the first few verses of Luke chapter 8. It says, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Well, I mean, for women to travel in first century Galilee and uh, Judea outside of their home is unbelievably radical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Jesus to welcome them as, you know, part of his larger traveling company is a huge risk. Now, there's not a whole lot made out of it in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus never really gets into any controversy with the Pharisees over that particular issue. Mm -hmm. You know, but Luke makes sure under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to note this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there are other places like the friends of Jesus from Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. By the way, it's, you know, they're the only ones in the Gospels who are called Jesus' friends. I'm sure that his disciples were his friends, but we're told specifically that these these were the friends of Jesus. And I love Mary. Every time we see her in the Gospels, she's at the feet of Jesus which is a powerful statement in and of itself. And it's, there's, I think there's two things that we need to take from that. I mean, the traditional posture of the disciple in the first century world was to be at the feet of their teacher. We, you know, the, the learner learned at the feet of the teacher. So that's part of the statement. And it wasn't cultural expectation. It wasn't even proper for women to learn the Hebrew Bible, you know, to learn the scriptures in that culture because their place was in the home. So to learn, was that was a distraction. The other thing, of course, about being at Jesus' feet, it was just an incredible sign of Mary's devotion to Jesus. And that classic passage, you know, when Jesus goes to visit the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha's getting lunch, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha gets all freaked out. She goes to Jesus and basically says, hey, why don't you tell my sister to get in line? I'm doing all the work here. And he says, Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. 
And in that statement, Jesus gives to every believing woman an invitation to be a learner at his feet every bit as much as any man who's ever been his follower. And I do think we miss this, and I mentioned it in a previous podcast, how when we don't offer church-sponsored types of employment for people who take the time and make the investment and, say, going to seminary, then we're indirectly keeping them from what you just said, learning in, in a serious way just as much as any man would who feels really called to, to really study and learn. Yeah, and the, and the women were the first evangelists. I mean, they were there at the tomb. That's right. And they were the they were the ones who stayed at the cross. The disciples fled, mm-hmm. except for John. John watches from afar. But the women stayed to the bitter end, and then they were the first ones to the tomb, and then they were the first ones to proclaim the good news to, to the other disciples. And, you know, from a modern perspective, basically evangelical mm-hmm. Bible readers, they would not see anything in that. And to try to make something out of it is just like, I think from the traditionalist perspective, it's like, come on, you know, like you're just reading this stuff in here. You're making, in effect, you're making this stuff up. Those were incredibly powerful statements by the evangelists. The disciples fled, the women stayed. Boom, right there. The women were the first, they evangelized the 12. And that's an incredible ironic statement. It's so Jesus operates within the confines of the culture. This is how biblical change works. You, you operate within the confines of the culture as much as possible, but you also stretch it as much as possible toward the kingdom ideal. Right. And I think that's what we should always be trying to do, you know, make the very best out of the situation that we're in while trying to gently and persuasively yep. move the needle in a more positive direction. So in terms of this, how is this helping to fulfill the prophecy of Joel that you reference in the book? And it's from Acts chapter 2, 17 to 18, where it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So if the church has been turning down the volume of women all these years, how are we not allowing God's spirit and working through his men and women followers to flourish? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, we can answer it in a number of different ways. I mean, mm-hmm. if you just take basic arithmetic, you've eliminated half of the labor force. So there's one way. But even think more powerfully, I think one of the caricatures of the early feminist movement was in the 70s was, you know, the basic push was to say that men and women are the same. Well, that didn't last too long. Mm -hmm. We're not the same. And I think that uh, feminine leadership is different than male leadership. And it's not that one is better than the other, but they need each other. If we think down through the years, if the church had both male and female leadership, we would have the benefit of two different ways of integrating reality, of viewing reality, of organizing life, and of solving problems. Mm -hmm. And we would be much further down the line than we are currently. And then another way that it's really hindered us is God granted authority, dominion to the male and the female together. And uh, we know from Jesus' teaching the power of agreement. I believe that one of the reasons why the church has been so slow to embrace this full and equal partnership is because the kingdom of darkness is resisting it. 
because male-female agreement in our prayers is incredibly powerful in the spiritual warfare dynamic. Mm. And that's tough to measure, Mm -hmm. but once you grasp it, you like get it. God gave dominion to us together. So we're only going to unseat the usurper when we operate together and when we operate in unity. One of the most powerful dimensions of that unity is when we pray together in agreement uh, from that place of understanding. That may be hard for some of your listeners to really wrap their their minds around, but I know that spirit-inspired, spirit-fueled intercession changes history. And I I love that you said that because I know there are a lot of ministries toward women. There's a lot of Christian living type of podcasts that more women tend to listen to and they're encouraging. I think in some ways you could almost say they're a product of being shut out of other spaces where they they maybe haven't been able to fully speak out and and preach and minister to one another so if a woman's looking to be ministered to but by another woman she's going to seek it out in this way and with what i'm doing i think that some people could have the sense that what i'm trying to do is displace the position that men have and that somehow i'm more pro women and and less for men and one of my friends was like, I don't know, I don't know if we should just turn the tables and put women in charge of everything. You know, something about that doesn't seem right. And I'm like, that's totally not what I'm advocating for. I think that we need each other. Right. So we need to do this work so that we can recognize the value of partnership and working together. And I don't think the the male only model in leadership is really what's designed in the Bible and is clear in the Bible. And I don't think Likewise, I wouldn't say a female only model of leadership would be would be presented. And so I and I also love that you bring up the point of just precisely because we're different, that adds value and strength to the whole. If we can come together and surround ourselves with people who have walked a different sort of life than we have, then that can help us to inform the way that we minister toward the people in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. So I was wondering, have you personally felt some pain and pushback as you led your congregation to a more egalitarian understanding of scripture? Um, I would say by and large, no. I've been very fortunate. When I started this project of teaching on this issue so that we might change our governing church document, our constitution to empower women to serve as leaders. I had a lot of trust with the congregation and the sermons that I taught, and then we had follow-up Q&A forums. That really formed the, you know, the foundation of the book. Mm-hmm. So I can't say I've paid a huge price. I, I really don't think I've paid a price for this at all. I think probably the only price I've really paid has just been, you know, the the inconsistencies at times of really living this out. And mm-hmm. um, that's on me. That's not on anybody else. So what advice, if any, would you have for any other church leaders who might be listening and considering moving their church in a similar path? to the one that you took. You said you preached a whole sermon series on this and had some follow-up. Was that really the way to do it? Just begin with a better way of informing your congregation? I said to the congregation, look, I believe that the Bible teaches the full and equal partnership of male and female. And I believe that we see that modeled in the New Testament, but it's, it's obscured by tradition. So I want us to change our church constitution. My method is going to be, I'm going to teach from the Bible why I believe what I believe. And if I persuade you, 
then I think it's incumbent upon us to make these changes because we say that the Bible is our sole rule of faith and practice. If I don't persuade you, then we shouldn't make this change. And either I need to repent and be corrected because I've been wrong, or we're not going to be able to walk together. And so, like, I just put all my chips on the table up front. And I did that purposefully so that um, they would know where I was coming from. I wasn't trying to, I had no covert agenda. My agenda was very overtly stated. And then I also said, like, we're going to hash this thing through until we come to a place of agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we went through the process, it was was a really good process. And I don't know that we lost anybody. We may have. It was a long time ago, so I don't exactly remember. Mm -hmm. You know, but what I would say to other pastors is, I'm going to make this statement pretty boldly, but it can come across kind of cheap or cheesy because here I am on a podcast, you know, the big courageous thing, woohoo. But I mean, like, either we believe the Bible or we don't. Mm-hmm. And I've been convinced this is what the scripture teaches. So if my primary calling is to be a teacher of the Bible, if I don't teach this, then I should quit. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's the bottom line. And if it's going to be painful, if it's going to be difficult, I mean, that's not really that's not a deciding factor. You, we have to be tactically wise and strategic in terms of how we introduce change. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to punk out on something because it's hard, I'm in the wrong business. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you ended up writing a really good book. <laughs> At the end of it all. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Yeah. So I guess this would be tagging along to those other questions. But as uh, for myself as a podcaster, an advocate for the church to fully embrace the potential and callings of women along with men. Do you have any advice for me as I move forward with this particular ministry or for someone in a similar situation as myself? That's a great question. I think, you know, we've, this is, today's the first time we've spoken. We've had some email exchanges. Mm-hmm. I would say you're on the right track and I'm just discerning your spirit, your tone, your, you know, just like where your emotions are, where your heart is. And you're definitely operating from the posture of a learner and someone who's committed to the truth, someone who loves the church, who loves God. And that's very winsome. And I think that posture and one that is equally eager to listen, Mm -hmm. even to people who disagree, like I talked earlier about entertaining hard questions, Mm -hmm. I think that's the strategy. And so, you know, for a podcaster, I think like in addition to biblical perspectives, like testimonies of, um, you know, what are examples of powerful female leadership in the church or in ministry, in mission, Mm -hmm. uh, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. I think that's going to be really, really persuasive. And I think also like, I mean, I would just challenge you like, like get your most radical anti-Christian friend or colleague and get them on the podcast and let the church hear what these people think because sometimes we just need to wake up and understand how other people view us and realize you know if if the church over there is saying that women aren't really qualified to be leadership why would i listen to them it's a pretty invalidating posture to half the race yeah i absolutely think that having people on and sharing testimonies is powerful because i think for a lot of us that are in the 
the camp of of seeing these gender roles is so rigidly defined. We haven't had a lot of association with with people and maybe other groups, Christian organizations that have really had powerful church ministries in this. You know, we're, we're in our own little shielded bubble. and But I, I know there's hundreds of years of, and, and more of history of women going out and boldly doing these things and being effective. So I, I would like to be able to bring that more into the general knowledge of things that people know about. Well, this has been really good. And we unfortunately are running out of time for this episode, but we're going to continue this conversation next time. I'd like to talk to you about Ephesians 5 and some submission passages because those are so popular (laughs) and how to read and understand those passages. Uh, It's been uh, such a pleasure to talk with you. And I don't usually do this, but I just thought I would ask, would you mind closing us out with a word of prayer? Sure, I'd be glad to. All right, thank you. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that your disciples called you master. They called you teacher. And we confess that we have a lot to learn. And I pray that you would continue to teach us. Show us, Lord, what our blind spots are. We thank you for your patience and grace with us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much. That is Rick McInnes, author of Equally Yoked and pastor at Wellspring Church in Kensington, Connecticut. You can pick up a copy of his book on Amazon and feel free to connect with me at the Just Be Podcast Facebook page. I would love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a rating or review through Apple Podcast. If today's episode was helpful to you, don't forget to subscribe and maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. God bless.